So Exodus chapter 8, verse 20 is on page 61. We'll read all the way up to chapter 9, verse 12. So this is in the middle of the plagues. So verse 20 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the water and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies, and even the ground where they are. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land." I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This miraculous sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials. And throughout Egypt, the land was ruined by the flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God here and in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as He commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only be sure that Pharaoh does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time, also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says. The God of the Hebrews says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock and in the field, on your horses and donkeys and camels and on your cattle and sheep and goats. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. The Lord set a time and said, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not, not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. Pharaoh sent sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died. Yet his heart was unyielding, and he would not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt, and festering boils will break out on men and animals throughout the land. So they took the soot from a furnace and stood before Pharaoh. 
Moses tossed it into the air, and festering boils broke out on men and animals. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and, all, and on all of the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. This is God's word. Let's bow together in prayer. Father God, we thank you that you can distinguish between those who belong to you and those who don't. We thank you and praise you for your saving hand in Exodus and the salvation that you provide for your people. We thank you for the salvation that you provide to us in Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that you provided for us the ultimate Exodus, redemption from slavery to sin and bondage to our own wills. Lord, this morning, help us see the beauty of Christ and the grace of God, which separates the Israelites from the Egyptians. Lord, this morning, speak through Kevin as he comes. Help him say the words that you will have him say. Lord, be glorified among us. Lord, help us to love you with our minds this morning as we hear your word preached. And Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in all of this. We pray all these things. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. So my name is Kevin Jameson. I'm a member here at South Shore Baptist Church, and it's my pleasure and privilege to open up God's Word with you this morning. And I thank Pete for his prayer, but I also feel I need to pray, so just join me in prayer real quickly, please. Lord God, This is your word, and I pray that you would send on us your Holy Spirit. God, we can't understand anything without your Spirit. And I pray that you would speak through me, through your Spirit, God. We ask you, Lord, we need your Spirit today. So um, open our hearts and our minds to these scriptures. We pray this through your name, Christ Jesus. Amen. So, probably about ten years ago, I don't know if you recall, there was this TV show, and it was quite popular. At least it was, so I teach high school um, Spanish. At least it was for my students. And this is a show called Fear Factor. Do you guys remember this show, Fear Factor? And the whole premise of this show, so there were teams. These teams would have competitions. And, of course, you know, the one who wins competition wins the prize. But, as the name suggests, all of these competitions were disgusting things, things that would make you just squeal, like you had to crawl through a small tunnel filled with tarantulas and get to the other side, or you had to eat um, sheep brains um, raw and then do this next thing, or um, lie down in a bed with snakes or, or rats. And, of course, the whole point is to make you go, eh, um, just like that. <laughs> and kind of like the same reason why teens love to go to horror movies. Um, but the good thing about Fear Factor is that it's just a TV show. If you don't really like it, you can just change the channel or you can turn it off. But imagine being here in Egypt during this time. It's like Fear Factor live. There's no escape from this fear factor element if you're Egypt. 
So if you're just joining us today for the first time, we're going through the book of Exodus. I believe we started early May, and we're just going through section at a time. And this is our third uh, Sunday. Or we're going through the plagues in three Sundays. Last week, Mark Jennings preached on the first section and preaching on the middle section this week, and Godwin's going to finish um, next Sunday. So as we look at these plagues, we're taking three Sundays to look at the plagues. I think there's, there's an overall theme. If you could say like there's a frame in which all of these plagues fall, I think you go back to Exodus 5, uh, really in Exodus 5 verse 1, it's the first time Moses comes before Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And of course in verse 2, and this is the real trigger, Pharaoh responds, he says, who is the Lord? Ha! Now, if you read scripture, these are fighting words for God. In scripture, we see when God is challenged like this, like, who's God? Ha! He's nothing. We see that God responds in a big way. And so, really, he answers this question, this challenge, you could say, from Pharaoh. He answers in two ways. First way is that he shows the world in Egypt who he is. And even more importantly, is that God makes himself known to his people so that they may worship him. In Exodus 6, verse 7, he says, God says this, I will take you, Israel, as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So, looking at these plagues through this lens, through this frame, God is making the world know who he is, making his people know who he is. What do we learn about God in these three plagues? So, the first major thing we learn about God, you say this is, this is a, bullet, a headline, is that God makes distinctions. God makes distinctions between his people and those who are not his people. And how does he make distinctions? The first way that God makes distinctions is he saves them. He extends to them his salvation. In chapter 8, verse 22, we read, But on that day, I, this is God talking to Moses, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen, where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people, as in the Egyptians. So let's take a look here. What is it that God's actually making a distinction from? And what we see in all three of these plagues is you could say it's classic compare-contrast. Like if you're writing a high school essay, today's compare-contrast essay, you could say, exhibit A, B, C, we have these three plagues. Perfect compare-contrast examples. So let's start with the flies. Um, first of all, this word for the flies, the, the Hebrew word, it has several possible translations. One of them is actually dung beetle, as in beetles that eat poop. Yes. I'm not making this up. Uh, and supposedly, one of the Egyptian gods... One of his incarnations was as a dung beetle. So it's sort of a sacred thing to the Egyptians. Another possibility is just instead of being just 
uh, flies. It means like a swarm of all different types of insects. But um, another one, and I think that this is the most accurate, it's probably the most likely, and this is, it means a dog fly. Think of like a horse fly on steroids that bites and sucks blood. Horse fly. See, when the Hebrew scriptures, so we have the Old Testament, it was originally written in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic, but mostly Hebrew. When it was translated to Greek, uh, about 200 years or so before Christ, this, is, this translation is called the Septuagint. And this is the translation, this is the word they used from Hebrew to Greek, dog, fly. And this translation was done in Egypt. So they understood the context. So it's most likely that this is the meaning of, of this word, the flies. Um, but regardless, it's clear that this plague was humiliating. I mean, these, these dog flies, insects, they destroyed the land. It says the land was ruined. Just imagine dog flies, insects in mass swarms everywhere, buzzing around and attacking everything in sight fighting and sucking blood. It's like a horror story. Uh, after all, though, what's one of the names of Satan? One of the names of Satan is Beelzebub. What does that mean? It means Lord of the Flies. So here's Egypt being attacked by mass flies. It's like a scene straight out of a horror movie, like a demonic attack. It's like Fear Factor in 3D, and it's live. And it's in your living room, but you can't change the channel. So there we have Egypt under massive attack by these little creatures. And then we have Goshen, where where Israel lives. And there are no flies in Goshen. So you could say it's like a, a visual, it's an object lesson to God's people. Compare, contrast Egypt and Israel during the plagues. On the one hand, Egypt being attacked by blood-sucking, killer, nuclear radioactive flies. And Israel, Israel belongs to God and was protected. Nothing happened in Israel. Israel was kept safe. And Israel was kept safe because God was keeping them safe. He was extending to them his salvation from this terrible plague. And God, as we see in the rest of of the plagues, God keeps his people and their possessions safe from all the remaining plagues. The livestock, he protects Israel's livestock. Uh, The boils, protects them from the boils. And we just keep on reading. God saves his people from these plagues. So this leads me to a question. Is God still like this, or is this just an Old Testament Thing. It seems awfully harsh of God to do this. It's not very politically correct. Well, I just want you to turn. So put a bookmark or put a finger here, a bookmark here. Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. It's on page 984 in your pew Bibles. I'm just going to read verses 31 to 34, and then I'll skip ahead to 41. And this is Jesus talking. So Jesus is saying, when the Son of Man, as in himself, comes in his glory and all the angels with him, 
He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Skipping down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So the answer to this question, does God still do this? The answer is yes. This is not only an Old Testament thing. This is consistent throughout all of the Scriptures. Our opening uh, Scripture from 1 Peter, you are a chosen people. God makes distinctions between His people and those who are not His people. He saves His people. So this leads us to the second, you could say, major headline here that we learn about God in these plagues. So God makes distinctions by saving his people, and God makes distinctions between his people and those who are not his people, and that only his people may worship him in an acceptable manner. Only God's people can offer acceptable worship to God. Over and over again, throughout all of the plagues, we see this phrase, Let my people go so that they may worship me. God says this before almost every sign. It's important. And it's clear from this statement, salvation is not God's end game with his people. It's not just like, okay, you're saved. Now go on your own. Run along, little children. That's not God's final purpose for us. From this statement, God is saying He's saving His people so that they may worship Him. God is elevating worship. And it's actually God's, it's actually worship of God that is the end game for God's people. So worship in all three of these plagues, it's a common thread. So I'd like to draw this out Now notice in the flies scene, after um, the the plague happens, well actually towards the end, Moses and Pharaoh, they have a conversation. And I think this conversation actually sets up the next two plagues as well. So in this conversation, Pharaoh and Moses, it's like they're haggling over worshiping God. Like there's there's a power struggle going on here. Pharaoh says, okay, you may go, but here in the land. And Moses has already told him, no, in the desert. We make sacrifices three days in the desert. And then Pharaoh comes back with, don't go very far. It's like Pharaoh's talking at this level and Moses completely another level. It's like they're not listening to each other. And really, think, I was trying to think of today's equivalent. What would it be like if God called South Shore Baptist Church, okay, Three days, go worship me. Take a three-day journey, worship me, come back. I'm trying to think about that. I don't, I don't think that our church would walk for three days. So I think we would all, we would rent some buses, like the buses that 
Remember the bus that used to be parked in the back parking lot? So we all get on buses and we take a long drive, maybe to like Chicago. If you've ever driven to Chicago, it's a 20-hour drive. So we all get in the bus, we drive to Chicago, we worship, we come back. And it's like Pharaoh saying, okay, you can worship, but you have to go only go to Weymouth. It's like, no, I need to go to Chicago. Pharaoh saying, Weymouth, Chicago. It doesn't match. So in this power struggle for worship, from God's perspective, when he tells us how we are to worship him, that's it. He wants and expects our obedience. And then Pharaoh, on the other hand, it's like he's saying, okay, if I give you, if I give in at 30%, if I obey you at 30% of what you're asking, is that okay? And God is stating in absolute terms, no. Let my people go worship in the desert three days. And just a random observation about this scene. Well, it's not totally random. It ties into to Pharaoh's hard heart, which Mark preached about last week. But doesn't it seem like in this dialogue with Moses, it's like Pharaoh is rationalizing his sin, like he's trying to reason with his sin, reason with his, for his disobedience to God. You know, he's heard what God wants him to do. Allow the Hebrews, go worship God for three days in the desert. And yet here he is trying to manipulate it. Have you ever done this with sin? Sin is insidious. It's deceiving. Have you ever said to yourself, well, I know I shouldn't do X, but as long as I do Y, which isn't quite X, but it's close enough, well, then I'm okay. Or another example. I know pornography is evil. I know I shouldn't look at pornography. But if I look at this other website, well, they're not technically engaged in pornographic activity. So is that okay? It's like sin is this pit in the middle. And we sort of run around it. It's like we try to do a little dance. Sometimes we kind of stick our toe in it, pull it out. We dance around the sin. And this is very dangerous. There's two problems with this. First of all, Proverbs 6.27, it says, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes getting burned? If you do this, you will fall. Although falling's not really the right word. Falling implies that, ah, it's not my fault. If you do this, you will eventually, with both feet, jump into that pit, that sin. And secondly, as Jesus pointed out so well for us in the Sermon on the Mount, our sin originates in our heart. So just because the outward manifestation of of the sin in our heart, it might not be considered you know, as bad socially, or because nobody sees it, in our heart, it's really the same sin. Jesus pointed this out. Okay, just because I don't kill my neighbor, or that guy who just cut me off, just because I don't kill him, that's, is that okay? The answer is no, because in my heart, I already did. God judges, he sees, and he judges our hearts. That's where our sin comes up. So this little dance around, around the sin, it comes from the same place as the sin itself. It's sin. So, please, don't dance with sin. 
cut it off. So that's my digression. So getting back focused on worship. So we see the next two plagues. We see livestock and boils. And I think they're both focused on worship. So the livestock. Why livestock? Well, the Egyptians, they worshipped livestock. So an attack on their livestock is an obvious attack on their idolatry. And I think also Moses, he sets this one up in his discussion with Pharaoh during the flies. He's talking about sacrifices. He said, we don't know what we're going to do. There's, there's a discussion about sacrifices. They're arguing about this. So what were the, the Hebrews to sacrifice in the desert? Their livestock. I mean, they didn't know which. Okay, it might be a sheep. It might be this. But it was going to be one of their animals. Now, at the present time, or excuse me, in several, the next several books in Scripture, later in Exodus and into Leviticus, God establishes a system of worship. He lays it out very specifically. You know, this is how you're to worship me. Of course, the central part of this worship is sacrifice, animal sacrifice. Now, at the present time, at the actual time, you know, the live looking, the live feed in this scene, Leviticus hasn't been written yet, but the concept of blood sacrifice for sins, it goes back to Genesis, something that's been around already for a long time. So why sacrifice? Well, the Scripture says in Hebrews, Hebrews 9.22, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So while these animal sacrifices, they're not truly sufficient to wash away the sins of the people, and, then, and Hebrews explains this. This is partly why they had to do them over and over again, year after year. But yet, they served their purpose. They reminded the people of God's holiness and their sin. And yes, God, for a time, accepted these sacrifices. You could say temporarily, until the final sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So once again, we have a visual compare-contrast lesson going on here. It's like God is saying, look, if you want to chase after idols like Egypt, you have no part in worshiping God. There's nothing that can be done about your sin. Without the livestock, Israel, your day of atonement, impossible. There's no bull for the high priest to slaughter. He cannot enter the Holy of Holies. There's no scapegoat to take on the sins of the people. You cannot worship God. Without the livestock, Passover, impossible. There's no lamb. There's no lamb to be slain. There's no blood that you can wipe on the door so that God can pass over you. You can't do it without livestock. God has taken away Egypt's livestock. God is holy. We can't come before the living God without atonement for our sins. Bible's very clear. Atonement for our sins can only be made by blood. So no livestock, no atonement. Moving on to the boils. It's a very similar idea in some ways. God is declaring his superiority. So we have these magicians. They can't stand before Moses. And the magicians and priests, so they're on the top of the social ladder in Egypt. You know, they led the worship in Egypt 
and this, you know, this competition. This is a blowout. Moses, he wins it by a landslide. We had slaughter rule in this game. They can't even come into Moses' presence. And, and if you look carefully, I love this word. Notice this, it's not just sores. This isn't just like that dreaded zit the day before prom. This is not like that. These are festering sores. What a great adjective, festering. You know, the ESV translates this as boils, breaking out in sores, but I like festering. I looked up the definition. Think about this all over your body, these sores, festering, gathering, inflamed, maturing, poisonous, septic, ulcerated, generating pus all over your body. And really, it's like, this is like a picture on the outside, what's really on the inside, as the land worships idols. In Revelation 16, the first plague of the bulls is pretty much the exact same thing. In Revelation 16, 2, it says, The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The priests in Egypt, they worshipped idols. They worshipped the beast. Same as in Revelation, and they get festering sores. In Leviticus 13, God gives Israel commands about skin diseases. It says that with skin defects, like leprosy, for example, you are not allowed to come into the camp and worship. You are considered unclean. Now, to make a, I mean, this is a longer explanation for that, but just The real short explanation of this is that it's to remind the people that God is pure and holy and our sin cannot come into his presence. In this state of boils, you cannot worship God. You must be cleansed. Now, all they have been focusing on worship, 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 worship. So when I say worship, why is this so important? Is worship just like singing songs and stuff. Is, is God saying, I want them to worship me? So it's like an extended version of chorus class? And the answer is no. I mean, worship is singing songs. I mean, that's part of worship. But worship, it's so much more than that. Remember, God was revealing himself to his people so that they may worship him. Think about this. I've already said it. Let this sink in. The end goal of God for his people is to worship himself, to worship God. Imagine yourself living at this time in Egypt. You're an Egyptian. Flies, blood-sucking flies tacking everywhere. Animals dying all over the place. Boils, festering boils on your skin. And then to see that Egypt is being affected And Israel wasn't. Imagine the sheer terror. It's like fear factor live. What a dreadful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God while we are in our sins. Our God is a consuming fire. 
This fear of a, of a holy, righteous God, it should lead to repentance, to us bowing before God and begging for mercy. I mean, I know. I'm a sinner. I'm not holy and righteous. As we see here, unfortunately, Egypt didn't respond in fear and repentance. But God was going to preach on that next week, so I'm not going to go into that. And now let's look at the other side. Now imagine that you are Israel. You are a Hebrew. And then you realize, you see with your very eyes, you've been saved from these plagues. Simply because God is merciful. Not because you've done stuff, but because of who God is. Talk about rejoicing with sheer jubilation. God has saved you from these terrible plagues. You see the power of God destroying Egypt, and yet you've been saved from His wrath. You cry out with all the strength in your being. Worship of God, it starts in the heart. And it's like a welling up of the soul with just sheer amazement and wonderment and joy, relief. I mean, I could go on. And then it manifests itself outwardly in many, many different ways. Singing is one of them. You love God. You know what he's done for you. You you want to sing to him, to dance, to serve him, give him everything. That's worship. Worship is, is the response that we get when we realize what God has done for us. And today, this hasn't changed. The knowledge that I'm a sinner. I should be receiving judgment like Egypt. That's what I deserve. And yet, just because of His mercy, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, I receive His salvation. Simply by faith in Him, by trusting and believing that He's done it. God's people should just look at this and and just from the innermost part of their beings cry out in in gratitude and reverence and awe. We can come before Him forgiven. You can't help but worship God. And this is God's plan for His people. That we will be in His very presence. Do this forever. Let my people go so that they may worship me, God says. So let's summarize. God is making himself known to his people. And he has shown that there are stark differences between those who are his people and those who aren't his people. So in this compare contrast, if you are not his people, God does not make himself known to you. God does not accept your worship. He does not look past your sins. They're not taken care of. He will judge you for them. God will destroy you. These are hard words. These are not easy for me to say. They're not easy words to hear. And yet, we must be faithful to God's word. This is what it as we read this, this is what God is telling us. 
But thank goodness it doesn't have to stay that way. If you are God's people, God makes himself known to you. God accepts and delights in your worship. God washes your sins away because Christ has already paid for them. God will save you from the judgment. God will give you eternal and everlasting life. So this compare and contrast leads me to two questions, and I'll close with these. First question, is this not his people, his people thing? Is it set in stone? And the answer is no, not as long as you live. Even to your final breath. Think of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. But once you are dead, the book is closed. Hebrews 9.27 says, Man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. There's no purgatory in the Bible. This is a concept that's been made up by people. You can't, once you're dead, start to try to earn your way back into God's grace. When you die, that's it. However, while you're still alive, while you're still here, even now, you can become a part of God's people. So the next question, so how do I become a part of his people? How do I get in? And the simple answer is by responding to the gospel by faith, the good news of Jesus Christ, by believing in what he has done for us. It's not by bloodlines. These same Israelites that we read about being saved from these plagues are going to perish in the desert because of their unbelief. And this is open to anyone. God's people. God's people is not by blood. It's from every race and every nation will become God's people. God promises this in his word. So we respond in faith. Faith in what? Or really the better question is faith in who? And the answer is the only one who has dealt with our sins, dying on the cross in our place, rising from the dead after three days in the tomb, and who now sits on his throne at the Father's right hand in heaven, ruling over everything, our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Christ, we are saved. Through Christ, we can know the living God and worship him. Through Christ, we are adopted into his family and become his people. Think about this for a final thought. While we were still sinners, while we were still living in Egypt, God's enemies reveling in all the flies around, while we were still there, Christ died for us. He rescued us from this land of flies. And he's still rescuing people today. And he's calling us to continue this mission, proclaim this message to the ends of the earth. Please pray with me. Lord God, Father, I just thank you for your goodness. God, 
There's not one aspect in us that we can say, okay, we deserve for you to do this. It's just simply by your grace that you have saved us. It's just simply by your grace that we can come before you and worship and know you. Lord, please touch our hearts. Open our eyes. Let us remember afresh what you have saved us from and what you have saved us to. We lift this up in your, in your hands. We praise your precious name, Christ Jesus. Amen.